Hello and welcome to the next episode of DDR, a podcast all about your favorite drow, Drizzt Doerden. Justin here, and in this episode, we'll be diving deep into Chapter 8 of Homeland, titled Kindred, discussing all of our favorite plot points, characters, and more. And my name is Jeffrey. One of the things that we like to do for all the huge fans of Dungeons & Dragons out there who might be listening to our podcast is to look for pieces within the chapter and how they relate to the tabletop game, and then delve into the dungeon. All right. Following the show is easy. Grab a copy of the book. Read the next chapter and tune in every week. Remember, we want to hear your thoughts too, so make sure to share. You can share those at drizdunright at gmail.com. Also, we want to make sure that you don't forget we have a Discord. How could they the forget link. that we have a Discord? We talk about it right. all the time. Why aren't you guys That's, there yet? <laughs> get in there. How do you get in there? The link is in the description of the podcast episode. Just click it or copy and paste it. You know what? If you have trouble finding it, make sure you email us at drizdunright at gmail.com and we'll personally send it to you. Mm-hmm. People that make interesting points or go above and beyond will receive a shout out from the show. Because honestly, we love to mention you all. One thing I wanted to mention is that a couple of weeks ago, we had a listener from Japan named Hiraku send us an email and join our Discord. They shared a picture of the books that they had. And much to our delight, Hiraku must have been telling all of their friends because Japan is now the second largest country from our listening audience with 6% of our listeners. Tying it with Australia. Can, Can you believe that, Justin? That is insane. That is insane. You would think that, I mean, I guess we do have most people in the U.S. listening. Uh, Not, sorry, I miss, (laughs) that would be really cool. (laughs) Most of our listeners are in the U.S. is what I should say. Most of the U.S. is listening. (laughs) One day, one day. (laughs) One day. (laughs) This means, though, that the next time that me and you have a layover in Japan, there is a legitimate chance that someone could walk up to us and be like, hey, your guys' voices sound very familiar. <laughs> like Next we could randomly run into listeners on our show from half a world away. So thank you, Hiraku, and thank you, Japan. Speaking <laughs> about international, we have 14 different countries besides the United States that make up our listening audience. You are all amazing. Thank you so much. That is unbelievable. It's true. You guys really are very amazing. Uh, I don't mean to throw Sevik the Grey under the bus here, but he kind of, he put out like something else cool that's going on in our Discord here. Um, he put out just some like feelers to see who would be interested in possibly playing, um, a mini campaign that he's putting together, a little two or three session D&D game, uh, set as mercenaries. I, I say mercenaries because I don't know how to pronounce it. (laughs) <laughs> so mercenaries in menzo barons on so if you're interested in that make sure you guys jump on the discord and hit up sevic sorry sevic that's more like throwing him in front of the bus not under it you put the billboard up and everybody's watching and then bam sevic yeah. gets hit with a whole lot of responsibilities love I'll, you buddy <laughs> you know um a few times I was thinking like, oh, you know, if I just like put myself out there, maybe I could make a few bucks being a being a uh, a DM or something like that. Great opportunity here, Sevic. You know, if you start having 50 people coming at you like DM our game, it's like, well, give me a few bucks, you know. Right. <laughs> and uh, if you start a Discord channel for the D&D game, you go ahead and let us know. We will find the link to that description and join in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
So, <clears throat> anyway, Jeffrey, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. I, uh, you know, been uh, doing a little uh, smoking over the weekend. Did a nice set of ribs. And, okay, uh, I was going to say, what great. kind of smoking? Okay. Well, you know, uh, the meat kind. <laughs> that still sounds horrible when I stop to, to delineate there. But uh, they were the same uh, recipe that I used uh, when you guys came down and we did Helmfest. Right. It's, oh, uh, yeah. Was it the, the Last Meal Ribs? They're called, I think it's AmazingRibs.com. And the guy's named Meathead. Nice. I was like, ah. It's a really great recipe. You go in when it breaks it down. You you click uh, it says use barbecue sauce. You, it's got a hyperlink. You click that and it gives you like twelve different sauces you can build, huh. where you can buy them. So it's like I, I kind of went crazy. Made my own rub. Made my own barbecue sauce. Did the smoking. Nice. Uh, got to use my turkey fryer again. Fried oh. up some some uh, wings. I still have it a, out apart. I still have a piece of that fryer. <laughs> I'll have to get that. Oh, to you. I have the little hanger thing. Yeah. So if you're missing that, I still have that. <laughs> I didn't even think about it because we did wings and I went to go find, uh, I guess it's like a seafood boil pot, you know, oh, okay. that they yeah. inside right. of it. Couldn't find it. Everyone's like, hey, we'll order it to the store. And I was like, mm, no, I need it by tomorrow. Like any person who plans things out well in advance, I waited till the last minute and uh, I got to find one. Right. So, uh, you know, tapping into my restaurant background, I just went and got a, like they call it a rescue spoon, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah in it you just go in and it's like right. i've been burned by oil so many times i'll just pick them out one by one by one right <laughs> just use your bare hands you're good with <laughs> <laughs> just lick the tip <laughs> bang get, get it real fast so. the key is to be in and out before your nerves know they're hurt exactly <laughs> or leave it in there long enough that your nerves are <laughs> just burned up and you can't feel it anyway <laughs> you too can look like a yahoo <laughs> I just have to put this out there. You mentioned Helmfest, and people were probably like, what? What's that? Uh, we used to play, um, speaking to our listeners, uh, we used to play uh, Betrayal Legacy. And what? how is it 12, 13, 14, even 15? 15 episodes. Because it's uh, Lucky 13. Yep. 13, oh, 13. 13. Rounds, whatever you call it. So it's a Betrayal Legacy. It's it's a, a legacy board game. And there were thir- essentially like 13 sessions that you would that you would play through with the same group. So it was a group of me, Jeffrey and our, and our wives. <clears throat> and we got to, what was it? The 11th one. We finished the 11th one and you're just, and yep. we were basically saying like, we only have two left. We need to like have a party out of this. And so we had something, we called it Helmfest because there is a, an artifact, I guess is the yeah. best, uh, the best word I can use for it. an artifact in the game called the helm. And it's, you don't disrespect the helm. And <laughs> Until it tells you to. Until it tells you to, and you start writing your name on it. It's just like, oh, man, what are we doing? Uh, <laughs> but such a fun game. One of my favorite board games that I've ever played. So that's yeah, what... It was, it was nice. We went, uh, we went full nerd. And for people who are like, whoa, whoa, term nerd, I embrace <laughs> it. I love it. We went full nerd. We dressed up in our house colors because you yep. get a family house. We made uh, foods that were based around like horror theme. That's how I got last meal ribs. The ribs <laughs> so good you'd want them for your last meal. Uh, well, we did uh, the little demon eye devil eggs oh, with the avocado right. oh, instead of delicious. the egg yolk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So they came out green. You put a little yeah. olive on it. You get the pupil, little red lines for the, uh, you know, the, the demon eyes. They're right. always like, you know, like they need more uh, moisturizer. Oh, and we did those uh, brain hemorrhage shots. Those were so yeah. gross. <laughs> no, they looked horrible, but you know what? They tasted pretty good. <laughs> they did. They did. All right, Jeffrey, we're in episode eight here, right? Let's go ahead and jump right into the Drizzed. The Drizzt is that part of the show where we're going to take a look at this week's chapter and give you the Drizzt of it. Love it. 
<laughs> this chapter, it hits the ground running right out of the gate as we find Zach Nefane and Drizzt engaged in an intense training session. Zach is pushing the assault relentlessly, forcing Drizzt to stay on his feet on the defense and giving him no room to breathe. Drizzt goes through the routine of parry and block, attempting to turn the tide, but notices a lapse in the routine and receives a sharp slap to the thigh from Zach as a reminder of what happens when you make a mistake in combat. You think it's a full hit point when he slaps him in the thigh there? I mean, I don't know. How many slaps would it take in the thigh to, <laughs> to kill someone? <laughs> I'm not willing to find out. <laughs> Sounds like a horrible way to go. <clears throat> Drizzt is concerned because the cross down parry defeats the attack, but it doesn't allow him to gain any uh, doesn't allow him any room to gain ground in the battle. Mm -hmm. Drizzt angrily reminds Zach that his lesson was that every move should bring an advantage. Zagnafane matched the anger as he goaded him to finish the lesson. Every move should bring an advantage or take away a, dis a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Zach growls for the lesson to continue and presses forward so furiously that Drizzt isn't sure if it's a lesson or a true attack. It soon became clear to him that Zagnafane was going to use his actions to reinforce the words of his lesson. Zach says out loud that the double thrust maneuver is coming again. And Drizzt is ready with the proper cross-down parry. But he only follows through with one blade and attempts to use his other blade to throw a devious counter of his own. Zagnafane sees it coming from a mile away and pulls Drizzt off balance. As Drizzt tries to regain his balance, Zack spins, spins a heel into the back of his knee, knocks him to the ground. Mm -hmm. Drizzt can feel a small trickle of blood as Zagnafane's maneuver left him standing in the dominant position, wondering out loud if there was anything more to say with his sword tip right there against the neck. Now see, with, with a drop of blood, that might be... Any loss of blood, that's got to be a uh, hit point, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one hit point is not a, a lot to give up to learn a lesson so valuable. <laughs> the parry is wrong. Mm -hmm. That's his response. Mm -hmm. Got the, 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 the sword <laughs> to the throat, little blood trickle going down, and yep. his response was, the parry is wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> Zagnafane laughs at the stubborn response from his star pupil. Zack marvels at Drizzt's chosen weapons, the dual scimitars with the curving blades that enhanced the dizzying flow of his sweeping battle style. Like that right there, R.A. Salvatore, when he writes combat to me, I've mentioned it earlier, mm -hmm. it is a beautiful ballet. It is artwork. Right. Yeah. And like that line that he put there, the sweeping style, it just, it really does fit because what I picture again is the whirling dervish, you know, the, the, the spin around, swiping, yep. slicing. And that fluidity of combat, it's right. beautiful. Now, when, when you say the dizzying flow of his sweeping battle style, who's getting dizzy? The person that's watching him or Drizzt? <laughs> well, no, it's got to be the person watching because Drizzt is evidently a master of spotting while spinning. Right. Like, yeah. He's on point like a ballet star, man. You know, like as, as, I got, as I get older, I find that I get dizzy so much quicker. Um, you know, like when I, <laughs> when I was little, it was like, yeah, I'd jump on the swing and do that like spinning thing. You'd tie, you, uh, wrap the chains up and then you just like, let it go. And you're just like going and it's fun to be dizzy. <laughs> but now I get like, now that I'm older, my kids are like, 
you know, spin me around in a circle. I'm like, okay, I do like two passes, not even like one pass. And I'm like, <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> uh, we used to have the merry-go-round of death. I don't know if you've ever played on those as a kid, but we would we would all like lay on the spinning wheel and oh, yeah, you guys yeah, yeah. try to hold on to the metal circle. And the people and on then the people outside are just, you. yep. <laughs> Until you fly off and there's only one person. It was stupid, but so much fun. <laughs> I would die so quick on those things now. <laughs> right. It would just be a vomit run. Yep. <laughs> So already, Drizzt is capable of besting half of the members at the Academy. Just a child. Mm-hmm. How magnificent might he become with more years of training? Zachnafane's running through this through, and he realizes that this child's temperament is indeed different from the average drow. He possesses a spirit of innocence with not a hint of maliciousness. This realization sparks pride inside of Zachnafane as he sees his own values reflected in, the, in, in Drizzt. Drizzt saw the connection from the other side of the circle, knowing that Uncle Zack <laughs> was different from the other Dark Elves, even those inside of his own family, it's especially Breeza, who exhibited a zealous, almost blind ambition in the my- mysterious religion of Lolf. Zack was even able to smile, which is definitely different than Matron Malice, who only ever spoke commands of service to Drizzt. Unlike most Rao, Zack seemed content with his station in life. He's even known to laugh, which is, as I've taken so far into seven and a half chapters we're going through, getting into the eighth here, not a very drow-like response to most things. No. You know, not, a, not a drow comedy club in the background of Menzo Berenson right. doing a whole lot of business. I'm, I'm pretty sure um, they made a point in the chapter to say that Zach was the only drow that he saw smile, right? Yeah, but it made me chuckle because in Chapter 7, we uh, touched base that uh, Alton was spinning around expecting to see Massage laughing at his That's true, uh, yeah. uh, his failure. Right. But it, it really does. It's, it wouldn't be a mirthful laughter. Right. So I guess oh, more like, Haha, you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I guess it's laughter, but it doesn't, doesn't seem like it, it meets the requirements of like a Robin Williams belly laugh. Right. <laughs> Zack praises Drizzt, who is discouraged because in the uh, a battle, the lack of a proper parry would have resulted in death. Mm-hmm. This is why they train. Zack even lets Drizzt in on the secret that he knew the twist that Drizzt tried because he himself had failed while trying to use it in training. And he even throws in a sly wink, which, again, doesn't, doesn't seem to be most drowse-proof uh, form of communication. Right. They, they think alike. But Zach Nefane benefits from four centuries of experience. Zach's trained the whole army of House Doerden, and ten times that when he was a master of Mele- in Melee Magthir, including Risen, all Drizzt's sisters, and both of his brothers. Ooh. Right? Drizzt <laughs> is uh, he's caught off guard by the term both because he's only ever known Dinan, mm-hmm. having only uh, never been told about Nalfane. Zach explains that Nalfane fell in battle the very night Drizzt's first breath was drawn. Uh, was it dwarves or vicious gnomes that killed him? Perhaps he fell while defending the city against monsters or some opponent even more foul. Wicked elves from the surface. <laughs> I, I love how they paint the, the right. dichotomy, right? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm everyone so- else in this world is like, those wicked drow and the drow are like, but we're so innocent. Yeah. All these other wicked people up there with the sun. I'm so excited to see his first interaction with the surface elves. At Zach least, can't. Well, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say just at least his first friendly interaction. 
Yeah. Because the, be... his first interaction probably isn't going to be so friendly, but eventually he's going to be like, I don't know. I don't, it's going to be interesting. To see the, the, the values collide, right? right. Perception versus uh, reality. Yeah. But Zach can't take any more and tells him that his oldest brother was killed by a drow. Ooh. But he can't bring himself to explain any further. Their training montage blended into days, days into months, months into more months, <laughs> as they fought until they were exhausted, only to drag themselves back to the training floor again as soon as they were able. Zach found joy in these days for the first time in years. In his third year of training, Driz was able to extend their duel for hours, sometimes even taking the offensive, finally, in many of their contests. Finally, someone who had the potential to become his fighting equal, speaking of Zagnafane, in a very undrow-like manner, laughter often accompanied the clash of swords. Drizzt grew tall, straight, attentive, eager, and intelligent. Even the masters of the academy were gonna have would find it hard to hold him in a stalemate. And these thoughts they thrilled Zagnafane. Uh, until he remembered that the Academy also served to reinforce the, pre the precepts of drow life and what they would do to this wonderful student. And this is reinforced when Matron Malice walked in, a reminder of the drow world outside of the practice room. Drist showed her proper respect at Zack's urging, keeping his previous boyish outbursts at bay. Matron Malice didn't doubt Drist's prowess with the blade, but questioned his heart and proper warrior attitude. And man, you know, the, the when you try to put drow in world and and, <laughs> and uh, Driz's prowess with the blade, it, sometimes those S's and W's really run together. Like. <laughs> Zach understood that Malice wanted him in, uh, emotionally hardened, was looking for an excuse to take him away from Zach and instill this attitude at the hands of a less talented yet crueler individual. Maybe mm, like Dinan. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he refused to risk it. He valued their time too much. So Zack did the only thing he could think of. He charged Drizzt with his weapons bared, demanding a show from the young warrior. Mm. Zack comes in with a fury that Drizzt had never seen before, even more than while reinforcing that uh, cross-down parry. Yeah, this this was actually a pretty scary part. It was just like, oh man, is he actually going to like, if he knocks him down, is he actually going to like hurt him? Or what's going on? And yeah, because in the training montage and the you know the training that they had done leading up to it, you you know there's always a lesson to be learned. There's a purpose to the the violence, right? And it's not to wound; it's to you know to, to teach. That's why he slapped him in the thigh, right? But now he gets the feeling like, oh, man, is how ooh, is he is is he mad at me? Like, is he gonna kill right. me? Like, what's going on? Yeah. So sparks flew as the swords rang out. Zach worked both of Drizzt's scimitars out wide out into out wide. Slices that would have killed him if Drizzt wasn't fast enough. Zack managed to draw blood with a weapon that Drizzt failed to account for. A crushing blow to the nose with a well-placed boot. Ouch. Forcing Drizzt to dive back and keep a safe distance until he could realign his senses. Like, I, it was really cool because that's the part where like, you know, you're, you're dueling and, and you're training and you're used to like, okay, cool, uh, high, uh, high swipe. High block, mm -hmm. low stab, parry to the side. But Zach now fights dirty and kicked him in the face. Yeah. So like he had no, again, reinforcing the idea of what's coming. He has no idea what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. And then Zach presses harder, demanding Drizzt show her. 
He lit Drizzt up with the telltale flames of fairy fire, making him an easier target. Drizzt responded by dropping a globe of darkness over them both. That's such a cool response. It is. You know, like you, fairy fire lights you up and it makes you, uh, like, you know, we'll get into it later, but it makes you easier to, to attack. Right. And so Drizzt is like, you know what? I'd rather blind both of us than right. have you see that much more. There you go. So feeling the incoming strike, not seeing it because they're in the globe, Drizzt decides to drop low to the ground and luckily avoided the swipe of Zack, who had levitated 10 feet in the air and struck down. It would have been a face level swipe. Anger suddenly replaces confusion. Drizzt lets his rage lead him back into the fight. He presses on with wondrous two-handed attacks, forcing Zack to retreat for a dozen steps back into the darkness. Driz returned the earlier favor and managed to drive a boot into Zachnafane's chest, blasting the breath out of his lungs. As they fought out uh, out of the darkness, Zach saw the look of hatred on Driz's face, and it mm. sickened him. Yeah, but he had no. They had no choice. This fight, it's got to be ugly. It's got to be real. And it's like I found that <clears throat> to really be like the the reverse flip of how Driz sees it. You know, like uh, he sees the the wholesomeness and the happiness in Drizzt, and he's he's buoyed by that prospect. Mm-hmm. And then they're fighting, and he sees the the drow part of Drizzt come out, right. with the hatred and anger on his face, and it's like the exact ah. the exact parts that Zach doesn't want to see. You know, the the yeah, <clears throat> he's trying not to um, build up those type of emotions or those those personality traits in him, and that's yeah, except be- in. In this moment now, he's literally trying to evoke that because he wants Malice to see That's it. true. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. So Zach, he then settled into a defensive rhythm to let the young drow expend his energy and fury. He fainted openings where there were none, baiting Drizzt's thrust, cuts, and kicks. Zach understood that even though Malice may be impressed by the physical display, there was more needed to convince her that Drizzt was ready. He had to keep her from conversing with Drizzt in any length of time because she would not approve of his attitude. Mm-hmm. Zack realized that Drizzt was tiring finally, although <clears throat> partially exaggerated. Zack pretended to twist his ankle, and <laughs> Drizzt could not resist the opening. The thrust came in a flash, but Zack Nefane had expected this, slapped the scimitar from Drizzt's hands with a short crosscut. Drizzt cried out in triumph as he had set up his own deception and knifed in over top with his remaining scimitar coming in over Zack's left shoulder. But... Zack was already down on his knees, allowing the blow to cut harmlessly high. Zack sprung up to his feet and led with the hilt of his sword, catching Drizzt with a right cross, stunning the young warrior and causing him to stand still for too long of a moment, dropping the remaining scimitar, staring with glossy eyes that didn't blink. (laughs) When I first read that, I, I thought that he was disappointed. You know, like Drizzt was like caught off guard, like, oh my goodness, like I, I failed. It's mm. like Zach then responds, a faint within a faint, explained. And then Drizzt dropped unconsciously to the floor. <laughs> so I was like, well, here I was thinking that, like, you know, Drizzt is like, wow, how did I not see that coming? Like, that I was so dumb. And then Zach responds, I guess feeling the same way, except Drizzt responded that way because he was unconscious right. on his feet. <laughs> that right hand knocked him out. Yep. Malice finally agreed that Drizzt was ready for the academy where Dinan would be leaving for soon, and Vierna was already at, teaching as a mistress in Iraq Tinalith. A high honor to have two children serving as masters at the same time. Malice did not try to hide that fact that favors were called in, favors that were owed. Zachnafane couldn't understand why, 
surely not for the protection of Trist. And so she laid out that the top three houses would have no fewer than four children in the academy in the next two decades. Zach hmm. Nefane saw that she had high aspirations, wondering how high House Dowerden would climb under her guidance. Malice explained that they would be fools not to learn more of their rivals. After all, they boasted more power than all but a handful of other houses. Surely there were easier targets higher up on the list, which you know, would also serve to benefit House Dowerden. So then that part was really kind of neat because it's a it's a little bit of a backplay between Malice and Zach, where Zach's giving her this like sarcastic response of like, oh, wow, how high we could climb, mm -hmm. you know, telling her, like, look out from behind you, too, because like that's what we did to House DeVere. Right. And Malice responds with, look, the, we're house number nine right now. And to be honest, we could crush most of the houses above us. So if you're behind us. You're not looking at us. You're you're looking higher up for easier targets. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Later, as Drizzt was nursing the pain in his jaw, Zach Nefane advised him to speak less so that the healing might happen faster. <laughs> <laughs> that made me chuckle because that's a very oh, yeah. uh, tough guy thing to say. Like, you imagine you got your jaw broken and you know, it's like maybe wired. It's not obviously damage isn't that bad, but it's like right. oh, it's all wired up and you're like, oh, this doesn't feel great. And the guy's like. <laughs> Well, you know, if you did less speaking, it would heal quicker. You know, hopefully that's a lesson that would serve Drizzt well around Matron Malice moving forward. Drizzt was under the impression that they were becoming friends, him and Zach Nefane. So Zach had to scold him and say, think clearly. Do you believe that Matron Malice would approve of such a bonding between her weapons master and her prized youngest son? You were a drow of noble birth. You may have no friends. Let's see. They already knew that, right? Did Drizzt already know that he was his dad? I don't think Drizzt knows. I think that Zach Nefane knows. Everybody in the house kind of knows. Okay. Malice probably definitely knows. But uh, Drizzt doesn't even know he had a second brother. So I'm pretty sure he doesn't know Zach Nefane's his father. Because yeah. earlier he refers to him as Uncle Zach. Right. <clears throat> so then Drizzt feels as if he's been slapped in the face. Because, I mean, him and Zach have been having this bond. Like I said, he refers to him as Uncle Zach. He loves their time together. And then here's Zach Nefane being like, you may have no friends. Oh, it's cold. Mm-hmm. So there's Drizzt, heart in his hands, feeling a little sad. Zach turns in and says, none openly at least. Lays a comforting hand on the young drow's shoulder. Friends equate to vulnerability. Inexcusable vulnerability. Mm. At least we too know who we are. And yet somehow to Drizzt, that just didn't seem enough. Mm. Like it's... It, it's weird that it starts on such a happy high note in that chapter with them being playfully slapping back and forth. And then it ends and you're like, oh, my. I just kind of want to give the little drow a hug and be like, buddy, I'll be your friend. Right. Like, ah. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> well, there we have the Drizzt. Let's go ahead and kick this up into the dim light reel. The Dim Light Reel, it's where we cast darkness on our favorite parts of the chapter and dim light all of our favorite characters, events, descriptions, and more. So, <clears throat> I think my dim light for this, again, there were, there were a number within this chapter that would have been, that were just really cool. Just, but I think the 
dimmest dim light for me has to have been when Zach Nefane accidentally revealed to Drizzt that he had another brother that he didn't know about. Uh, so uh, when he's talking, let's see, what is he talking about? He's talking about all of the people. Zach Nefane's talking about all the drow that he has trained. And <clears throat> yeah, so Zach and Driz were sparring and Driz continued to try to make the cross down block into a more offensive move to no avail. Zach tried to persuade Drizzt that the cross down is the best move for for this specific situation, despite not giving any specific advantage, but um, but rather because it evened the the battlefield, right? So taking away the disadvantage, yeah. exactly. It, it took away the disadvantage. That wasn't enough for Drizzt. He wanted to have that advantage that advantage over top of him, so he kept trying for more and more. Just didn't. Foreshadowing, that is going to be a trait that Drizzt used in his life quite a bit. <laughs> so, Zach says he trained many drow, and this was the best move for this situation. He says that he trained Risen, all of your sisters, and both of your brothers. And there it was, the truth was out. Um, Drizzt, assuming that, or let's see, excuse me, I missed, I jumped the gun a little bit there. Drizzt had another brother. Zack is quick to inform uh, that Nalfane, his oldest brother, was killed in battle. Drizzt, assuming his brother died honorably, asked whether his brother was killed by those evil dwarves or gnomes while defending the city. No? Then an, (laughs) an opponent even more foul, those wicked surface elves. Dancing under the sun. (laughs) No, not them either. Zack snaps. He died at the hands of a drow! And Driz just remains silent for a moment and asks, War within the city? And Zack just lets the conversation go. So I like this part because Driz is now 16. And it just shows that these vicious customs of the drow are still a mystery to him. It was a total surprise to him. You know... And so he has been conditioned to hate the dwarves, the gnomes, and those surface elves. But the thought of a drow killing another drow just utterly dumbfounded him. He just stopped. He's like, what? That that makes no sense. And almost as if the words didn't even like form properly on his mouth because it's, he didn't, it was so foreign of a concept. Right. And so that was just, um, just seeing how they are conditioning him. Like I said, he he doesn't like the dwarves or the surface elves or the gnomes, but you know that this part of drow fighting drow. I guess that would have been what the weapons master would typically, maybe I don't know. Like perhaps where I, where would that mentality where, come from? Well, we'll we'll get into that further down in in, in future chapters okay. where that yeah. actually comes from. I think. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely part of their training. Okay. You know, where they're, you know, he's, he's led to believe that uh, anything that looks different is bad. You know, we talked uh, earlier in a couple of episodes about how uh, regimes will continue to oppress their people by giving them other people to uh, hate. And right. because they look different, uh, maybe their skin color is different. Maybe they live in a different area. Maybe they pray to a different God, but as long as it's different and they use that to drive the divisionary wedge between them and uh, us and them, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's definitely, I think, something that more comes with combat training than school, uh, well, academic learning. I guess, yeah. So anyway, um, that was definitely one of the more, um, I keep wanting to say highlight, but we're talking drow here. That was my dim light. Jeffrey, what's your dim light this week? Uh, that was pretty dim, but in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> my, my dim light reel is Melee Magthir. One of the most iconic places in Homeland. Even though there are many places that jump off the pages to me, this is the one that holds a spot near and dear for a lot of fans' hearts. And I, I can't help but think that I'm going to butcher this like I have two left feet trying to do the tango. Nah. <laughs> Melee Magthir, if that is how it's Magthir, Magthiri. Melee <laughs> Magthir is the warrior school for the drow of Menzo Berenza, part of the Tier Bresh Academy. It's one of the three schools that noble male children were expected to attend, and it's nicknamed the Pyramid because of its shape. Mm -hmm. Their education usually began at 20 years of age and continued on for 10 years. Graduates from the the Warriors Academy did not hold as high a prestige as those from Sorcerer or Arachtinolith, but still held a greater distinction than those who were normal citizens. Which we know held no real great distinction to the drow hierarchy. You know, they, they rank slightly above surface elves and those, those, those evil, evil gnomes and dwarves. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but I'm not sure we have yet to meet an actual drow who's not of noble descent. Like, definitely not within the House of Doerden. And moving forward, I'm going to try to keep my eyes out to when I first find a normal drow. Yeah. No, I never thought about that. Students spend their first 50 days listening to tales about how elves of the surface world mistreat the drow. Then about nine years in combat tactics. So that's kind of a shout out to where you were saying, you know, where they learn the hatred. The precepts are put down, at least in concept, before they they enter this training, this world. And then the first 50 days, they are just peppered with, you know, uh, tales of why their life is so hard because Hmm. the surface elves you know cast them down here and they're evil you know earlier i think in a couple of in one of the chapters they mentioned that they you know elves just frolic on the surface all right just having fun but then they reinforce it here that most of the the pain and negativity that the drow face is really because of the surface elves. Hmm. You know, they're the favored ones and now the drow have been forced to come underground and, you know, kind of hide from the world Hmm. and they they blame their problems on them. A notable training exercise for concentration inside of Melee Magther, or sorry, the next nine years or so deals with combat tactics. A notable training exercise for concentration and self-control involves students sitting naked with their eyes closed as masters dropped poisonous biting centipedes oh. onto them. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it, it's not bad enough that, that you're naked and in front of everybody else <laughs> being you know shamed to a point, having that vulnerability exposed, but they're dropping biting poisonous centipedes. So, yeah, at least your eyes are closed. <laughs> right? like, well, that's the worst that could happen, right? No. Maybe the it's... first break of uh, calm, like uh, the first outcry, get you a disciplinary hit second break it's going to get you a more forceful blow and then for the third strike you're you're literally out it it failure will result in expulsion so you're getting bitten you've got the pain you're naked you're around all these people and uh yeah you know if you let anybody know it hurts you're gonna go ahead and get kicked out because you're not a warrior oof 
And that's now, just there's a dishonor reason for, for this. That's just dishonor for your family at that point. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's like you would think like it seems kind of needlessly harmful, but there's actually a reason for them to reinforce this concept so hard. A deep meditative state afforded healing capabilities and heightened martial prowess. When you hmm. think of the drow culture, they're almost always at war within the house, without the house, with everyone around them. And you need to be able to heal. You know, doing the D&D campaigns, you need a short rest, you need a long rest. Well, the more time that you're sleeping, you need guards. You need somebody to protect the party. But if you can meditate, you're not fully out, you know, unaware of your surroundings. And you can still get the same benefits as having that full rest. Yeah, I guess, right? Yeah. So, you know, they beat these drow so hard that nothing will keep them from getting to that meditative state needed to you know, heal and, and heighten their already well-trained martial abilities. Hmm. The final year of their education was rounded out by spending the first six months at Sorcerer and the last six at Iraq Tinalith. The graduation ceremony was regarded as holy by the followers of Lolf. It takes place inside the hall of Iraq Tinalith. This, uh, inside the hall of Iraq Tinalith. The soon-to-be graduates don a ceremonial robe and sit in circles against the wall. No biting centipedes. Oh, God. <laughs> well, you would think so. But uh, allow me to continue. The matron, <laughs> the matron mistress of the clerical school would coax a narcotic red smoke from the flames and summon a Glabrazoo. Glabrazoo. Yeah. That's a <laughs> demon that specialized in the temptation of mortals and spread corruption like a virulent disease. Temptation of mortals. Almost like seductive, like a succubus or something? Yep. <laughs> Other priestesses would select males from the outer benches and engage in sexual acts, hmm. enhanced by the narcotic smoke. And then, rumor has it that a Glabrazoo would also partake in these sexual acts. And that uh, might actually be how Dregloths were created. Have you ever heard of a Dregloth? A Dregloth? Not by its name, no. Now, at the risk of jumping too far ahead in this book, have we we've heard this term striders yet, or the driders yet? <clears throat> I don't know that we heard of driders at okay. this point. So then I won't go into that. But uh, a Dragloth <laughs> is a half demon, half drow monstrosity. So that's why the Glaber Zoo meeting with the drow, they think it might produce this because it's half drow. However, it's got four arms, and the brutes were built like an ogre, yet nimble and graceful like a stage dancer. These things are over seven feet tall and look horrifying. Like if you saw Mortal Kombat and you remember, oh, what's his name? The guy with all the arms. The guy, yeah, with the four arms. Shoot. Goodness. Ah, I can't remember. Johnny, Johnny Cage beats him up in the movie. Uh, I don't know. It's been forever. So, Goro. Goro. That's his name. I was about to look it up. <laughs> he is essentially like a very handsome looking uh <laughs> what is they called Dragloth? Because the Dragloth looks almost like a werewolf oh, in the picture that I found with this long mane of the, the drow white hair. It's got these four arms that are like, you know, uh, menacingly hunched forward on this massive muscled body. I'll have to look and into it's like, that. Imagine taking a drow and like feeding it steroids for like years <laughs> until this thing becomes this massive over-muscled, like, you know, genetic abomination but still maintains the nimble and graceful ability to dance into battle and oh, dice you Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. That's crazy. So, yeah, that, that 
you know, they said graduation ceremony is a little different. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, Justin, you know what? Just take us into the dungeon, Dale, buddy. The Dungeon Delve, it's the part of the show where we link this chapter with our favorite tabletop RPG. So Jeffrey, I know a couple episodes ago we were talking about uh, that open game license issue. It does sound like they brought that back. They reined it back a little bit. Um, it's, it's amazing what happens when suddenly people are like, I will take my money elsewhere. <laughs> uh, so yeah, apparently... Because of everyone's reaction to it, uh, they kind of reined it back. They're like, oh, okay, never mind. We're not going to do this. Now, yeah, the, psych. now the creators of, um, oh, what's the other one? It's not D&D, Pathfinder. I know Pathfinder's like a, a uh, offshoot of, I think it was 3.5 or something like that, from what I understand, of D&D 3.5. I don't um, so I've always heard the term, but never actually, you know, I, I didn't get into D and D until late in life as far right. as playing. So it's like, I've always yeah. heard the term Pathfinder and the other ones, but it's like, yeah. I always assumed it must be a, a whole different kind of game, like the star Wars one or whatever. Yeah. So is it Pezo or Piazzo or it's the company that makes Pathfinder. I'm pretty sure from what I understand, they're actually working on making a tabletop game that is going to be completely like, I guess, open license. Um, and nice. it sounds like they're going to keep moving forward with it because I guess the fear is Hasbro already or Wizards of the Coast, whoever you're talking about, they already came up with this plan. They're probably going to come back with it again. But anyway. like, like any great dominating, uh, you know, uh, authoritarian figure, you know, hey, they, they rolled it out. The people didn't like it. So they pull it back and they're just <laughs> waiting for the proper opportunity to slip it in when you don't notice. Yep. Yep. And they're just like, well they'll mull it over for a while being, you know, the, the consumer will mull it over and, uh, you know, they'll try it again. And maybe this time they'll be like, Oh, well, man, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, so in the dungeon delve, we, again, we, uh, look at this chapter with the context of a tabletop RPG. Uh, we play five E so that's, you know, the context that we're going to take it in, uh, <clears throat> at this point, I don't know. I really want to try AD and D sometime. Right. <laughs> And within this chapter, we're told that um, my uh, sorry, my dungeon delve is it has to do with exhaustion. So in this chapter, we're told that Zack and Drizzt continue to train as hours blended into days, days into ten days, ten days into months, and then, as you so eloquently put it, months into more months. <laughs> about three years i think they said the training went on yeah. but i was like man I, I when i say months into years i feel like i'm giving you too far apart. right <laughs> no Let's i got gotcha. so they would train until they became exhausted and would train again as soon as they were able to so they were exhausted what does that mean so we're gonna take a look we're gonna talk about exhaustion within the context of the game. so Ironically, with- as you mentioned, exhaustion. For those on the YouTube, uh, you just saw me yawn. It's <laughs> like the word itself just makes me mechanically yawn. And for the listeners, by all means, come find us on YouTube. The show is now showing us as a... Uh, yeah. Hi! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 5e has a an exhaustion mechanic within the... You can find it referenced within the player's handbook. Uh, it's it's referenced a few times um, when discussing traveling pace and the consumption of food. 
uh, in that if you travel for too long without sleeping, then you're going to become exhausted. Or if you go on for too long without eating, then you're going to become exhausted. But the place where you can get the most information on exhaustion is found, again, in the player's handbook on page 291. It's in Appendix A with all of the conditions. You know, So you have incapacitated, poisoned, paralyzed, all those. It's, it's in that same section. Uh, so exhaustion can be caused by, as I was saying, a number of different things at the DM's discretion. Uh, but the most common causes are starvation, lack of sleep, or even if there's long-term exposure to... Uh, extreme cold or extreme heat, uh, even magical effects can cause exhaustion. So a character can uh, attain up to six levels of exhaustion, uh, where each level afflicts the character with another negative effect. So let's take a PC and send them through these levels of exhaustion. So I dug What do we call the PC? <laughs> no, no, no. Like I, I made this PC already. He's an actual like oh, I went digging okay. through I went digging through my character sheets and I found a cleric a dwarf uh, cleric that I made uh, his name is Rorik Fireforge I I haven't actually played with him I just kind of built him for fun a number of weeks ago uh, so so we have Rorik Fireforge this dwarf cleric let's say that Rorik is stranded out in the tundra surrounding ten towns so it's just severe cold. Uh, he's exposed to this extreme cold every day unless he finds a way to keep warm. Uh, so night one, he's very cold. He didn't manage to get a fire going. He does have some furs to wrap up in. That's going to be one level of exhaustion there. Uh, level one of exhaustion gives the PC disadvantage on all ability checks. Not now, how's that going to affect you? So, Just so the people at home who aren't familiar with it might be. So every time you do an ability check, you roll a d20 and then you add your modifiers to it. So suppose you rolled like a 10 and then your modifier is plus 3. If you're, um, I don't know, trying to find food, right? Let's say survival. Yep, foraging. Yep. So you roll a survival check. You roll a 10. You add 3 to it because that's what your modifier is for survival. I don't actually have his character sheet out here or else I could tell you uh, what his modifier is, but... Um, and that would go against the DM's DC. Out in a tundra, it's probably pretty hard to forage for food. So you would probably need like a 15 or higher, at least, I would think, to be able to successfully forage for food. So, so then the disadvantage would make them roll a second time. Of course, that's what I should have been talking about, but I totally forgot the question. <laughs> so like, even if they hit high up, say you rolled a natural 20 and you're right. like, man, I found a buffet but then, in, the, in, the, in the tundra. Right. But your second roll hits a 13, then mm, sorry, it's like, oh, the buffet, the buffet was actually just a pile of rocks and I'm not about to eat that. Uh, so now, so he already had one level of exhaustion from this extreme cold. Now his food has run out. So that's another level of exhaustion that he gets. So now he's out at, at um, exhaustion level two. So that means he still has the disadvantage on ability checks that he had from exhaustion level one. But now at level two, his speed is halved. So before, horrible. So yeah, which is really bad, especially for a dwarf, because that goes from a twenty-five down to, I guess, technically like a twelve point five, but you round down, so it's basically like ten feet. Which right? means that, like, so if he's trying to get back to town where the food is, right? Because he knows yep. where to find food in the town. Well, now he's at a disadvantage for checks. If uh, things are around him, he's not as alert, and he's also has to take twice as long to get there, while yep. still facing maybe more. 
problems. Yeah, so I mean, there could be there could be uh, things out there trying to eat him, wolves or something. Uh, but you know, it's still cold, and so maybe tonight it's cold again. He gets another level of exhaustion. That's level three, and now he also gets disadvantage on attack rolls and saving throws. Those are technically not ability checks. So your ability checks would be acrobatics, um, sleight of hand, stealth. Mm -hmm. All those are ability checks, but attack rolls and saving throws, they're in a different category. But now he also has disadvantage on those at exhaustion level three. So poor Rorik, maybe on exhaustion level three, is sitting around his lack of fire, right? With lack of food. And so his perception check on these dangerous elements is at a disadvantage. So he might not see the wolves coming. Right. Right. He can't run away because he's not that fast. Right. So now he's got to stand and fight these wolves and hopefully maybe eat them. Except, well, he's now he's got disadvantage on attacking them. Right. That's and if, horrible. And if he starts eating raw meat, that could be a constitution saving throw there. And he has disadvantage on that, too. <laughs> OK, so, so level oh, the wolf. three is, is not where you want to go. And that's probably the worst it's going to get. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. It can't get much worse than that. Right. Let's take a look. So as it go as it goes on at fourth level, his hit points are halved. Ah. So whatever, like he gets ma- uh, half his maximum health. Um, Easier to kill. Yeah. At level five exhaustion, your speed is reduced to zero. You can't move. I mean, that's just kind of like then you laying down and being like, you know what, this is too much. It's like hope, hopefully, hopefully someone will come and find you at that point. And then at sixth level is death. So it, it got worse. Is it what did, you're saying. It did get worse. Oh. Very pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so I really hope this see. does sorry, go ahead. No, you can see though, I mean, from a, a practical standpoint, how those levels would stack up and make each and swing level happen quicker and, yeah. and the faster. Like yeah. The, ooh. Yeah. So hopefully Hopefully this does not actually happen to Rorik if I ever do get to play with him. Uh, Hopefully he takes the time to rest because every time you have a long rest, one level of exhaustion is taken away. So if you do get to level three exhaustion and then you manage to have a comfortable long rest, now you're at level two. So you'd still have disadvantage on those ability checks. You would still have, what was level two? Level two was half speed, I think. Uh. So you would still have those until you long rest. I mean, essentially, if you're at level four, um, you would basically need to rest for four days to get rid of that exhaustion. But you'd have to make constitution saving checks as well, right? Because you don't have food. Right. So without having food, you're like you're trying to sleep, but you're having to throw saving throws or ability check to continue to sleep in order to get better. Right. So, yeah. So as like if someone came along and found you. And brought you back to town. It would basically take four days for you to get better. They would have to, you know, take care of you, feed you, keep you warm, all that. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very fun mechanic that 5e has. And it's very useful if you're trying to simulate some survival type scenario. Uh, where a group is traversing through a desert or a frozen wasteland. I tried to incorporate it in our campaign a few weeks ago. I don't know if you remember or not. Back in... Um, See, yeah, when we were up in the Gold Chill Mountains. Up in the Gold and, Chill uh, Mountains, cold. Yep. Cold was uh, crazy, but luckily we had people who were able to cast Bonfire, and yep. we had a, oh, it's Calic Necromancer, who had the ability to make yurts out of the uh, animal skins that we had. So we at least were able to you know, put a little shelter right. up inside of that cold, yeah. cold place and still find a uh, you know source of fire. And then I believe it was Vadi, who is our 
Bard. No, not Bard. Bard sorry. No. Uh, she's a hunter. She's a warlock. Ranger? She's not a warlock, is she? Ranger? No, no, no. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Warlock. Warlock. She's very she rangery, can... but she is a warlock. Yeah. yeah. I say she can forage, so had the ability to help us with food that we, you know, were able to supplement our our stores and yeah. not have to face several levels of exhaustion. Yeah. So. I should have been a little harder on you guys with that one, but uh, it, you know, it, it created that angst that I was looking for. You guys were like really worried, like, oh man, are we going to, you know, not, not necessarily survive the night, but you know, you were looking at that level of exhaustion. You're just like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we got to experience it a bit firsthand too, because uh, Shadrick uh, is an anxious bard who is very unable to sleep most of the time and self-inflicts levels of exhaustion upon himself. You know, which... Uh, you know, if a character decides to do that, I'm not going to say no. It's like, you know what? I'm not going to sleep well tonight. Here's some inspiration. That takes away one of the disadvantages on your ins- or your uh, um, ability checks. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I do. I, I love that mechanic of Shadrick. Like, he's not your atypical bard. He, right. He's not your typical bard. He right. takes it a, a little, little further. I like. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. So for me, when I looked into the Dungeon Delve part, I wanted to pick out Fairy Fire. And for those who play Dungeons and Dragons and aren't adept at the nuances of combat, I feel like I can hear a groan coming as <laughs> soon as I mention fairy fire. Yep. Yep. You you in the back, right back there, over there, now that camera, we can see you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the most dazzling spell like Guiding Bolt, Eldritch Blast, or Fireball. However, when it comes to the mechanics of combat, I think it's an extremely useful support spell. Mm-hmm. It's a first-level evocation uh, cast by bards and druids. It's got a range of 60 feet, and it takes one action for casting time. That's six seconds of time. The target is uh, each object within a 20-foot cube. So it's generally best to cast this at a group before they get a chance to spread out and find comfortable mm-hmm. attacking positions. Each object inside of that 20-foot cube within the range of 60 feet is outlined in a blue green or violet light so when they mentioned it uh zach nefane hitting driz with it you get the purplish hue he went with the violet light okay i mentioned that because at least in the 5e you get to choose the color which is that's a little neat you know you get to add your own yeah. little flair to your own little like rave party while it's going on and you get <laughs> any creature that fails a dexterity save is going to be outlined in that color for the duration, they're going to shed a dim light in a 10-foot radius. Now, that, that makes me chuckle because I never considered that if you had the ability to make bad guys flee, maybe, uh, intimidation, right. maybe yeah. by like Rock, our barbarian, yeah. if I cast dim light on the bad guys and we make them flee, well, that gives my character the ability to see in darkness just a little bit better. Right. <laughs> and you just imagine like this person trying to hide somewhere and you just see this faint aura coming out from behind like a rock or something. <laughs> like, yeah, like, I see you. <laughs> so their duration, um, any attack roll against the affected creature that's glowing during the duration is going to have uh, an advantage if the attacker can see it. So like you imagine if he's hiding, I can see him. I right. just can't see. I know where he is, right. but I can't see him. So it's not going to help me to attack him if he's hidden behind a wall. Okay. But I know where to go to see him so that right. I can still get the advantage on right. attack. Which is huge. So many people don't think like um, they don't think about those support spells that yep. maybe they don't do damage. But I mean, being able to roll advantage for an attack is huge. I mean, it doubles your chances. Now. 
I'm not sure. Maybe you know a little bit better as the DM. Is that every single attack? So like my character does two attacks per round. Would I still get the advantage on attack if Fairy Fire lights him up with my second attack? Or is it only my first attack and every first attack of the character on it? I mean, honestly, if... I'd have to look at the spell, but if that if that's an effect that's constantly running, then I would think it would be every attack. Yeah, so that's Which, like even more vicious. Right, because Rock has a multi-attack with his yep. Nacho Axe, and that would be devastating if he rolled advantage on both of them. Yeah, I mean, you, the, the damage you can do from that is crazy. Yeah. But then going a, a step further than that, it also, uh, the creature or the object is not allowed to benefit from being invisible. Hmm... So if you have someone or something that can turn invisible in the middle of a battle and it's hit with fairy fire, well, not invisible. It's still glowing in light so you can see it. That would be pretty cool. That would be pretty like I just imagine like throwing a horde of something at you guys and it's just like, oh, there's two of them. And then you cast fairy fire on on them and suddenly there's like, oh, there's seven of them. (laughs) See, that wouldn't work because you have to be able to see the target to cast. Now, this gets into the whole... uh, deep dive of it right there's a lot of discretion in the forums between how this works and i'll explain that because like for me what catches my interest is the fact that you can light up objects with it right okay and it's something i never really considered now until now and uh what kind of objects could you light up with it and what advantage would it be to give you to trying to strike it I, I did go into a few online forums, and it's not going to surprise many people to know that it was really a lot of people just arguing about this very topic and resulting mm-hmm. in people saying, well, it's the DM's excre- uh, discretion. Because mm-hmm. a lot of them are saying, well, if there's something hiding in that 20-foot cube, it then becomes lined with fairy fire. And the other people saying, well, no, you have to be able to see the target in order to cast it. And going back and forth. So I couldn't actually find the, a proper delineation between the two. Well, as I'm reading the spell here, it says... Uh, each object in a 20-foot cube within range is outlined in green, blue, green, or violet. Okay, so it's all the objects in that in that square are lit up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it says any creature in the area when the spell is cast is also outlined if they fail a dex saving throw. So yeah, okay, I would that think- would be terrifying then to be like, I see that guy, cast fairy fire, and then... Yeah, then there's, there's more. Horde, like. Now, yeah, it, it is only a 20-foot cube, so the chances of you landing it directly on a, that many <laughs> that many creatures would be pretty pretty insane, but um, I guess it could happen. But yeah, so it's... Then, but yeah. why would you want to outline objects then? I don't know. I don't See, know. I thought about this, and as I, was, I was tooling around with it a little bit. So two of the examples that came to my mind where it could be useful was, like, say there's a lock on a gate. And your party is in a hurry to try to escape before being caught, murdered, or mauled. Right? You're running from a bad guy. You could light the lock with fairy fire while your party mate tries to strike it or break it because they have the advantage on the attack roll there. Okay. Huh. The other example, and uh, I mean, well, a little brush on the shoulder there. It's Robin Hood. Right? So think about the old tale of Robin Hood where he enters the archery contest. If you were one of his merry men, you could cast fairy fire on the target and he'd have an advantage in shooting at it. Now, I, I think everyone's gonna, everyone else would notice that the glow of light suddenly surrounding the, the right. target. No, and all, Mal- all eyes are on Robin Hood. They're not on the target. <laughs> the flare and flourish. Like, now that I think of it right, everybody that notices it would also still have the same advantage. 
So like you'd right. only really be able to use it on that last shot where he put the arrow inside the other arrow. Well, that's how he did it. <laughs> yeah. That'd be fairy fire. Yeah. If you guys at home can think of any other like cool examples on how to use an object, cast it on an object or why you would use fairy fire on an object. I know one of the guys was like, well, mimics, right? Maybe you could find a mimic or like uh, cast fairy fires. They're magical mm. weapons we can't see. If you guys have any cool options like that, anything that pops into mind, go ahead and shoot us an email at drizdunright.com, drizdunright at gmail.com, or join that Discord and put it in the chat. Let us know what you think. Yeah. I, I mean, as a DM, it's it does get boring if it's just like, oh, run over here, slash him, run over here, slash him. But it's like when you come up with these unique ways of using spells and everything, it, even if it's not like by the book, even if it's not raw rules, it's like, you know, I, I kind of like to use the whole, like, rule of cool kind of thing where it's just like, hey, it doesn't say that exactly, but that's a really cool idea. Let's go with that. And, you know, I might make yeah. you roll for it or something, but. No, I, I'm with you. I mean, that's, again, one of the reasons I think that for me, Ari Salvatore's writing was so amazing is because of the ways that they use the concepts I'm, I'm familiar with, like Cast Darkness uh, earlier in, the, what was it, Chapter 1, where Dinan throws it on the bugbears and they're trying to run. Like, ah, oh, they can't see where they're going, and they tumble into each other. Yeah. Look at the chaos and chaos. And, <laughs> wow, I always thought of Cast Darkness just so that I could run away. I, I could hide from other things. Right. It's like, that's, there's so many other ways to use it. Like when they attacked House Devere and they blotted out the entire house with you know, multiple globes of darkness. Like, yeah. wow, that's that is cool. very cool. Yeah. 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 So it's like, I, I like that as well. I think it's neat to find like in, uh, in inventive approaches to, to using something. And I yeah. think that Salvatore does it all the time. Yeah. And, you know, we bring him up every once in a while, but I feel like we really, we need to give him some more credit um, as we do this show. I feel like we don't bring his name up enough. <laughs> like, um, just what an awesome author, what um, what a privilege it is to... Uh, I think the wording we use in the credits of our YouTube video is just like, thank you for this sandbox for us to play in. Um, An homage that we give to you, <laughs> Mr. Salvatore. So thank you so much. And thank you, all you listeners out there for listening. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, so thank you. Uh, remember that if you like the show, make sure to rate, give us a rating on whatever platform you listen to us on. Um, also make sure that you're getting the most out of this podcast. Make sure that you pick up a copy of the book and read along with us. Reading is such a drag. Flipping pages, tapping the edge of your Kindle. Who wants all those paper cuts or calluses? Why not pick up your own audiobook and listen to it while keeping your fingertips baby soft and keeping your eyes free for other things like gnomes, evil creatures. <laughs> When you finish Chapter 8, feel free to shoot us an email at drizdunright at gmail.com. Log into the Discord. Join in the discussion. Remember, link is in the podcast description, and we would love to hear from all of you. We would love to hear from you. So it's been a blast, but now it's time to say goodbye. That's it. Wrap it up. Put a bow on it. These chapters are starting to stack up quicker than the body count of a drow prince. Oh, man. <laughs> Farewell, guys and gals. Play fair and be well. <laughs>